Welcome to Life on Less Meds, a podcast that reveals the truth about drug side effects and the best strategies to manage them. And now your host, Dr. Yosef Wittering. Hi, I'm I'm Yosef Wittering, and today we have a special guest here. We have Lyle Murphy, the founder of the Alternative to Meds Center. And the reason I thought it would be interesting to have Lyle come on and talk with us uh, is because I get asked a lot in my practice, you know, is there anywhere I can go? You know, I don't feel like outpatient level of care is really suiting me. I'm looking for something that's a little bit more intensive. And I almost never have any places to recommend to, to folks. And then so I found Lyle online, uh, you know, looking at different things. And I'd heard about his uh, center. And I thought it would be a great opportunity to bring him onto the show so he could uh, talk a little bit about, um, I guess, the work that he's doing at the Alternative to Med Center. So I'm going to turn it over to Lyle and and I'll just have you introduce yourself and then uh, give us a little bit of information about wh- why you, I guess, what the center is and then why you started it. Okay. All right. My name is Lyle Murphy. I'm the founder of the Alternative to Med Center. We are a state licensed, um, higher level of care residential um, that's also JACO accredited that helps people reduce and or eliminate the need for psychiatric medication. Um, a lot of what we do is not just careful medication tapering and supplements, but it's also unpoisoning people. Some of the f- fundamental principles of what we do surround a um, science called environmental medicine, which really deals with what type of poisons are out there in the environment, um, what type of genetic uh, vulnerabilities are most susceptible to those toxins, and then the mechanisms to clean that stuff up um, and get a person better. And a lot of what uh, we're being exposed to through pesticides or mercury or whatever really are neurotoxic. They destroy the ability, the body's ability to regulate its neurochemistry. And some of those, um, you know, some of those patients are really easy to see once you know what you're looking for to tell if a person's toxic um, and um, be able to, you know, help those people in a way that just medication tapering alone would be um, not able to do. Mm-hmm. And so, so Lyle, how did you how did you get involved in doing this kind of work? Well, I was going to school to be a chiropractor. Um, I had actually foregone going to Emory. I had the um, pre med grades and the uh, the um, you know the, the 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 letter of recommendation, everything to go to Emory. And I read a Harvard study somewhere that said that the top twenty drugs prescribed for the top twenty disease processes actually performed worse than placebos and i just i couldn't imagine myself prescribing at that point um now i wish it would have dawned on me at that time that having a medical license would have allowed me to unprescribe those very same things but that really um i I wasn't that you know far-sighted at that particular time so i went into a drug drug free profession of chiropractic and um got all the way up to the end of my education. And literally as a starving student, I went into uh, hypoglycemic shock from not eating and um, ended up in a coma for two weeks. When I came out of the coma, I had an IQ of about four. I couldn't talk. I couldn't uh, walk or balance. Um, I couldn't remember most of anything. And I certainly wasn't going to be anybody's doctor in that particular, uh, you know, like, like that. And it took me 10 years to recover. I was actually volunteering at a um, drug rehab that had a um, sauna program. And they allowed me to do the sauna program. And it literally brought me back from 10 years of being in a brain fog. And um, 
I didn't completely identify with all the tenants of that um, rehab process. Um, it was a little bit too fundamentalized for me, and I'm very, um, I'm very nonconformist in many ways. So um, I went to school, back to school, and got a postdoctorate in environmental medicine and really learned kind of the ins and outs of how to unpoison people, figuring that, you know, there's other people out there that are ending up in a psych ward because they have blood sugar problems or have poisons that um, are affecting their neurochemistry. And by and large, that is the majority of people. Very few people have organic problems that are leading them into a psychiatrist's chair. They usually have things that are uh, remediable that can be alleviated uh, without or with minimal use of psychiatric medication. Mm-hmm. And um, the, the, I mean, just curiously, the low glucose thing that happened, did they ever find out what, I mean, what, what caused that? Was it purely, you know, poor intake or was there some other medical process going on that, you know, I mean, you got so sick, you're in a coma, you know, that. Yeah. I mean, I just wasn't eating, you know, and yeah. I was eating like a student. So I was yeah. eating, you know, whatever cornflakes or, you know, uh, just didn't have much attention on my diet for being a chiropractor. Um, Sure. Okay. And um, so I think I was reading, uh, I think on your website now, now, correct me if I was wrong, were you prescribed psychiatric medications at any point during your recovery or while you were trying to heal from all of this? Oh, yeah. For that, for that 10 years afterwards, I really mm-hmm. did resemble um, the diagnosis schizoaffective. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't have that many really super high-functioning brilliant moments like most uh, schizoaffectives do because I was really post, um, you know, basically stroke-like residuals. But I was having the very lofty um, believing that the spiritual unfolding of the plant was happening through my brainstem, that um, I was being followed around by people with cameras and that I was on a reality TV show. And so when that would happen, I would get um, thrown into a psych ward somewhere, tied down, forked, injected, drooling on myself, you know, kind of stuff. So, yeah, I, but th- the fortunate thing for me was I was so handicapped. I was so disabled that I couldn't even keep up with, like, taking the medication and going to see doctors. So mm-hmm. I didn't stay on these meds very long. It was more like acute care stuff. Um, getting me whatever their version of stabilized was and then turning me back out to, you know, flounder and um, be low functioning again. Okay. And so I, I guess you, so it sounds like when you were recovering from this coma, you were having some psychotic symptoms. People were saying that you had schizoaffective, you were hospitalized, you were on medications and, and you kind of went through this pattern for like 10 years or something before you, you, you healed yourself through this program. Is that right? Right. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And it was what, like a yeah. football. I mean, mm-hmm. I had what felt like a football helmet on my head. I literally couldn't see above my eyebrows. It was all fuzzy up there. And I felt like there's this weight on my head. And I mean, I was sleeping 18 to 20 hours a day. And even when I wasn't sleeping, I wasn't really awake. And it just, just one day it just was gone. It was, quite um unusual when you've been impaired with mm -hmm. neurological symptoms for a decade you don't usually see that just vanish you know it it hits sort of a plateau and you're kind of stuck there for life and that's where i thought i had gotten to was that plateau and all of a sudden you know it was like miraculously like magic wand kind of healed and uh 
Yeah. Okay. And so I'm guessing you're, you're somewhere in your 30s, right, when you kind of <clears> wake <throat> up from this, this decade of um, disability, right? Correct. Age yeah. 25 to age 34. Okay. And um, what do you think it was about the, um, the, the sauna program that, that healed you? What, like looking back on it now with your knowledge of, uh, you know, treating patients and environmental medicine and such, how, how, do, you, how do you understand that, um, that recovery? Um, usually people get incrementally better, you know, um, I haven't seen too many people just have like a suddenly a pop from being so disabled that they can't even take care of themselves hardly to like <laughs> going back to being somebody's doctor. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's, that, that, that was unusual. I don't really have a mechanism for that. Um, I know that my brain seems to have a higher requirement for vitamin C than, what my diet would normally produce. And um, I'm sure that's part of it, but um, I don't know. That part remains a little bit of a mystery, honestly. Were you doing dietary changes at the same time you were kind of going through this, this sauna program? Was it multiple things happening or was it really like the sauna program that, that kind of kicked things off and then the rest kind of, you know, followed shortly thereafter with, you know, your improved, I, I imagine motivation and, uh, you know, to, to continue to, to heal yourself. All the organic diet and um, more focused um, supplementation came after that. It really was just this process. And um, um, so by and large, poisons that will accumulate in your body <laughs> are going to be fat soluble. And they can bind to, you know, any cell in your body, any, any cell membrane, any it can affect your nervous system. Um, to get those out, you need to transform them into a water-soluble form. And that's what that particular process I went through was, is is a biotransformation process, phase one, phase two, bioactivation and conjugation of poisons. Well, that was a very antiquated approach, and there's much more, you know, current and um, um, uh, more, you know, top-shelf science approaches on how to really focus that in there. Uh, that program did really nothing for metals. We we put a lot of attention on heavy metals. These things can really do a lot of havoc, specifically uh, neurochemical havoc as well. So, um, yeah. Interesting. Okay. And um, so tell me, so tell, tell me a little bit about, uh, I guess, the, uh, I guess the start of the alternatives to med center, did this start off as like an outpatient practice doing some consulting or did it, did it start as a residential? What, what were the, what was the beginning of this, um, of this program like for you? Well, I had, I had access to um, some single room occupancy places in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Um, not necessarily the best place to have people, you know, wind yeah. down and be in a spiritual experience. It's very loud in San Francisco, but um, uh, one thing that was advantageous is um, I could work with schizophrenics and, um, you know, they could be on the streets of San Francisco and go relatively unnoticed. So in the beginning, I was working with um, schizophrenics and seeing if some of the orthomolecular principles that were talked about by Linus Pauling and um, Hoffer and Richard Cunyon and Michael Lesser and some of those folks actually played out in real time. And 
I found a very distinct difference in the the populations. Like what a lot of people were defining as schizophrenia, I wouldn't have defined as schizophrenia. It it kind of came down to if a person is experiencing symptoms all of the time, they're having loose associations or hearing voices, and they've been low functioning for a decade, that's much different than a person who has intermittent psychosis that's high functioning mixed with complete train wreck the more mm-hmm. effective population. Um, the modalities, the, the vitamin, the high, the high dose niacin, the high dose vitamin C, um, worked really good on the schizophrenia, but it didn't necessarily like pop somebody that had an organic brain damage or had been low functioning schizophrenic straight out of it and put them back into college where they could be high functioning. So, mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> I just came to realize that if it works some of the time, it's not broken. And it's really just a matter of figuring out what is causing um, the person to go into uh, to being symptomatic. What is the switch there that's, that's getting flipped? And for most people, um, it was marijuana. And marijuana has a, has a different effect on different people. And it's a fat-soluble compound. You know, if you test an employee for marijuana, they can test dirty for th- up to 30 days and, mm-hmm. and with normal physiology. So a person that's got impaired physiology that can't make that leap from transforming a fat-soluble, you know, cannabinoid into a water-soluble form where it can be expelled from the body, it amplifies its concentration faster than the person, you know, if a person's still smoking it. Their, mm-hmm. their, their bioconcentration of that goes up faster than their elimination does. And so they end up at psychogenic levels and um, lo and behold, they're um, looking like they're schizophrenic when it's really just a drug-induced psychosis. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, other, there's other reasons. I mean, in my case, it was blood sugar. Some people's case, it might be food allergies. But um, it's just really just a Columbo sort of... Uh, you know, investigative Sherlock Holmes process to figure out what is mm-hmm. this person doing that's not in alignment with their, you know, how their particular individual physiology works that's causing them to be symptomatic. And once you figure that out and the person can, you know, adhere to it in a, in a relatively angelic sense, they're not a product of the, of the, of the, of psychiatry anymore. They're functioning and playing their cards the way that their cards need to be played. Mm-hmm. I think um, I'm going to, I'm going to jump in here and ask you a little bit more. So you've got this experience in adv- environmental medicine about, you know, I guess things like lead, other toxins, pesticides. You're also, it also sounds like you um, um, are up to date with orthomolecular medicine and the different, I guess what many people might say, you know, functional medicine, uh, these days, but what else do you offer at the center? I mean, what are the other pillars um, of your uh, your treatment approach uh, outside of those two two areas? Well, we have a full naturopathic team. Mm-hmm. Um, we have uh, psychiatric uh, prescribers that are, you know, definitely friendly to helping people reduce or eliminate their medications. And then we have, um, you know, we have counselors that do trauma uh, work that do, mm-hmm. um, you know cognitive things to help people integrate um, people that have been snowed over by these medications. You know, the, the one of the things that, um, I don't know if jealous is the right word, but 
when you're working in the conventional paradigm, when you dope somebody up high enough on medications, you don't have to deal with their emotions. You don't really have to help them integrate much of anything, if anything. When you're pulling people off of medications, all of those yeah. layers start to become like when you're snowed over on Zyprexa, you don't care what sex you are, what sex you're attracted to, what you know religion you adhere to, what, what your purpose is in life. All of that's really super muted. Mm-hmm. But when you start pulling people off those, you know, the antipsychotic medications, all of that stuff starts to become relevant and it can become relevant really fast to the point of perseverating over it. And, and the, the balance is to just reduce those medications at a rate where they can integrate those new feelings and have them gel into some kind of understandings or how to move in the world. It's very nuanced work. There's no, there's no, uh, it's not a matter of just prescribing somebody something and sending them home. You know, mm-hmm. you, you have to help with these feelings and things that come up in the time that they come up. Uh, otherwise, the person's going to stall out or even spin out. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point because, you know, if I think about the traditional inpatient psychiatric setting, you know, it's one physician, maybe there's like 20 patients there, you get a 30 minute intake, um, and then they might see the patient for five minutes a day. They're, you know, they're not conducting the kind of history, which I imagine you are, you know, where you're, it's, it's more comprehensive, you're talking about trauma, things that are going on things you know, let, that led to them being on the medications and I guess doing a more comprehensive dietary and even exposure kind of history, it's like, okay, you have these symptoms, you know, you fit the criteria for schizoaffective and um, now we're just going to go and, okay, you didn't respond to Zyprexa, we'll put you on some Risperdal and some Depakote. Uh, visit done. Um, and then maybe they uh, look at the labs or something like that, but, it, you know, they're not set up you know that they're they're essentially they're not doing the same work it's it's very uh it's almost like a product uh production line kind of kind of thing in some in some settings which is you know it really is a disservice to patients that are having more of these complicated problems like you said you know they don't all present the same way if you have someone with intermittent psychosis who is high functioning and they're just not fitting the uh, clinical course of schizophrenia uh, clearly i mean that that may that may be a sign to look deeper at some of the things that uh, uh, that you've been describing. Well, mm. and another thing that's just kind of boneheaded. I mean, we we tend to believe that you know doctors are gods, and I'm not a god. You know, you're not a god. We know we know that, mm-hmm. but sometimes patients view as that. And it, what what is really um, a disservice to the mental health population is that the people that have the, the the most limited amount of exposure to the patient being the doctors are the ones making the biggest decisions for that patient's life. Mm-hmm. And that's why a residential center, I think works much better. I can't figure out people outpatient. I, I, I do very little outpatient work because there's just so many variables, you know, when I have somebody inpatient, um, you have somebody around them 24 hours a day. They can, they can tell what's working, what's not in more of a real time and give feedback to the prescribers and say, Hey, they're not doing that well with this particular medication cut or this bridge medication that you're using. Um, it's working great, you know, or, or whatever. But in a doctor's office, you don't get that. 
especially mm-hmm. even if you get to a doctor's office nowadays, you know, a lot of it's some um, telemedicine and it's, it's just, it's just, um, it's, I mean, like it's, 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 like it's, 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 bro- it's broken. You know, I, I think uh, the system is broken for a lot of people. And I mean, unless you have a lot of financial resources and you can go somewhere private and you can get in pretty quickly and, and find someone who can do a good job, um, you end up, uh, you know, with 15 minute appointments, three months apart, you know, with, with very little, um, nuance in, in the prescribing decisions. Um, mm-hmm. so coming back to, I guess, the start of your clinic, I'd be, I, I'd love to hear about that. Uh, how, how did, how did it start? Uh, you know, the residential center, T- tell us about the first couple of years of, you know, launching that project. Well, it was trial and error. I mean, the first four years, honestly, were um, nobody. I mean, there was at, at the. I mean, we're we're going back almost twenty years now. Okay. So I, I I don't know how long have you been in practice. Seven years. Okay, so this is way before anybody was really talking about medication mm-hmm. withdrawal. If you talked about medication withdrawal back then, it was like it was like if you if you talked about something besides. Um, the 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 John Wayne sort of propagandized machismo male version uh, back in the fifties. You must be a communist to mm-hmm. not buy into that, and you're labeled a communist and you're thrown out of Hollywood. If you were talking about, you know, psychiatry might have some gaps back then. You were called a Scientologist, and so mm-hmm. you got lumped oh, into yeah. being a Scientologist. Even, yeah, I remember. I remember even our like because we would hire you know standard psychiatrists to help us withdraw people off meds and give them some guidance like oh we think they should go from you know five milligrams of zyprex to 3.75 and i remember seeing all this stuff online like oh your psychiatrist is a scientologist and i'm just like oh my god so back then you had scientologists you had a few rogue uh you had a few rogue uh sort of lone wolf uh orthomolecular people and then you had a batch of um, psychologists that, um, you know, were doing work with people around around um, just psychological interventions rather than using medication. That was it. And if you went looking around for information that might be working, it wasn't much there. So we put a lot of this stuff to the mat um, to see, you know, what might work and might not to the test of truth. And some of the orthomolecular stuff panned out and some of it didn't. And um, it wasn't really until we started unpoisoning people. I mean, with my first batch of schizophrenics, I probably had about a 25% success rate getting people off medications, having them stay off medications, and going to be high-functioning. That's what the orthomolecular interventions alone were doing for us. Once we started unpoisoning people, we really started targeting organic and metal poisons and getting them out of people's body. That's when our success rate shot up to around 75%. And then we add, added the spiritual layer, layers, the psychological layers, the family you know, intervention layers, and good aftercare programs for people to be successful out there in the world that we started hitting you know, 80% and above. And when and when you kicked this off, um, was this a uh, I guess a one man show, or did you have uh, collaborators who 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 launched this thing? Because you know you look at the center now. I mean, you have a lot of staff members. 
Um, you're doing so many different things. Um, uh, what what was it like? Uh, I guess start you know starting it was it just you? Were there other people? I guess you're in. No, you're in, it was are you lot- in Sed- <clears throat> Sedona? Is that right? Or yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's a beautiful place to be. It's a yeah. it, we we found a great home to do this. Um, mm-hmm. It's very tranquil here. People don't need a gym. They don't need. I mean, you just go outside. Outside is a gym. But um, no, I was pretty much that um, lone wolf kind of manifesto person that you think of like being in a in a in a like an eight by eight room like with a bare light bulb hanging from the ceiling like tapping out this manifesto on a typewriter with a couple of broken keys i mean i really didn't get much um respect mm-hmm. and it was really hard for me to swing doctors into like entertaining um withdrawing people off medication and i remember getting two employees and i almost felt like the table was like kind of floating i'm like whoa this is this is great. I have some help, you know? And, uh, then, um, <clears throat> then, uh, I had a nurse come on that was like, this guy is right. This guy is absolutely on point. And she helped swing in, you know, some doctors and some other professionals. And now the culture's changed. I mean, I used to get people call me 20 years ago and argue with me about why they should stay on medications. I'm like, well, why are you calling me then? Yeah. And now I get, you know, people that have already read up, have watched the videos sometimes you know big name celebrities that i would never have met if i wasn't doing this kind of thing and they're like okay how do i send my loved one to treatment they've already they already understand that psychiatry is very limited in its ability to be able to help people and it didn't it did not used to be like that (laughs) it was it was it was like cutting across the grain when the grain was like made out of titanium back then and now it's like it's like you know, it's, it's got, it's got some lubricant. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, more than that, I mean, I, I look on your website, it seems like there's, there's like a spa associated with the facility where people can go for treatments and then you have the residential facility. I mean, it really looks quite impressive what you've built, you know, a, a very comprehensive, uh, you know, healing place. You know, it looks, it looks great. Um, it's probably the most complicated rehab in the country. Yeah, yeah. Tell tell well. Tell us more about you know what it looks like if someone comes. Let, let's go with someone who maybe maybe they've got depression. It's not working out for them. They're on an antidepressant, an antipsychotic, um, maybe something for sleep as well. What what does a program look for someone like this that that comes to see you if they were going to get the whole nine yards? Um, well, generally we try to push people into the you know unpoisoning track. Um, the depressed and anxious population they have. You know, there's a lot of reasons for depression. There's a lot of reasons for anxiety. Again, one of the one of the big differentials is is it constant or is it intermittent? Um, when you get that patient, which is the patient nobody wants to get, no rehab wants the patient that the more you reduce their benzos, the the more anxious they get and they don't come out of it. <clears throat> and they go into protracted withdrawal and they're not sleeping and they're not eating and they they can't even hardly drink water. I mean, those are the those those are not your detox facility type patients. You know, mm-hmm. there's some patients that they're on eight milligrams of Xanax and they're just kind of addicted to it, and you can withdraw them off of it and at a conventional center, and they're okay. We don't generally see those type of patients. We see the ones that 
as they try to reduce the medication, they get to a place where they're stuck. And I guess one way to try to introduce this is <clears throat> there's what a neurotoxin does is it poisons the way that the neurochemistry works. Like for instance, a pesticide, um, a pesticide knocks out a pest by, by disabling its nervous system. Mm -hmm. So like, like, um, organophosphates or organocarbamates, which are popular pesticides. Um, the, if you can imagine a grasshopper, a grasshopper uses acetylcholine to kick its leg. So acetylcholine is released, the leg kicks, and then the sodium ions, the sodium channels close and the leg stops kicking. <clears throat> well, if you put a pesticide in there, it poisons the enzyme that actually, um, the the acetylcholine esterase that will pull acetylcholine back off of the receptor site so acetylcholine stays stuck there and you get a constant inflow of sodium ions the grasshopper goes into tetany and dies just mm -hmm. just and you see patients come in that look just like that they're they're not able to they're they're not able to regulate their nervous system and it's a constant disposition so they're like, how are you going to get me off my meds? Every time I try to get off my meds, you know, I stop sleeping, I stop eating and, you know, going to crisis. Well, that's like, um, that's like if your nervous system was a game of catch between you and, you know, your, your son or something, and you're just kind of lobbing the ball back and forth to each other, that's the vesicles throwing the neurotransmitter over, hitting the receptor, the receptor throws it back, so it's reuptaken, and it's a normal exchange. You put a neurotoxin, and it's like putting a major baseball player up to the end looks like we've paused a little bit here yeah i was gonna say i lost you just for a moment the last thing i heard was it's like playing catch with your son i was wondering if you could repeat your analogy yeah so Okay, so a neurochemical back and forth. The the synaptic vesicles hold, you know, a, a neurotransmitter. They throw it over to the receptor. It does its thing, and then it comes back and gets reuptaken. That's mm -hmm. like a normal game of catch, right? Mm -hmm. But when you've introduced a neurotoxin, it might be like having a major league baseball player pitcher throw a hundred mile an hour fastball at your bare hand. You're not going to catch that very long without using the glove. So then the person starts introducing Xanax or some other type of benzo to kind of soften that pitch, right? Mm -hmm. Then they try to thin the glove down. They thin it and they thin it. And they get it to the place where it starts hurting again. And they can't get any farther. And that's because they're neurotoxic. So part of what we're doing is we're unpoisoning the nervous system from the metals and from the... Um, from the other uh, uh, excitotoxic um, things that can dysregulate a person's uh, uh, neurotransmitters. In our nervous system, our brain is a biochemical organ. It's very, very susceptible to chemical change. A very small amount of chemical change can produce a lot of neurochemical habit. And when you see patients that can't regulate, they have constant symptoms of OC, usually neurotoxic. And you have to unpoison them before they're going to be able to find relief. So it, it really is that part of the differential diagnosis. If they're coming in like that and their first agenda is to get off of meds, 
I mean, if they're over-medicated, yeah, but usually people have shaved it down to the very bare minimum and want mm-hmm. us to just finish off that last quarter milligram of clonopin or something. And it doesn't really work like that because now you've just got a bare hand with a fastball pitcher, right? You've got to unpoison that person enough to where the nervous system is actually doing a normal interchange and then getting off the Lexapro for 15 years. They've got a bad diet where they're just basically eating sugar to try to artificially boost their serotonin levels. Then reducing those people off the medications, upping their serotonin levels using tryptophan and getting them on an organic diet can just sort of sweep them right out of it. So it really depends on your patient. And it's very, very specific. Um, Sometimes people have Lyme disease. Some people have damage from vaccinations, which is a whole other malady that we seem to be facing right now that is confounding us and other practitioners too. But yeah, it just, it, it, the prognosis really depends on what the presentation is. Okay. Okay, good. And, um, well, I know you, I mean, you were talking about helping people stop that, that final bit of uh, benzodiazepine, whether it's Xanax or clonopin. Uh, that's, that's, that's most of what I do. And I would say, you know, another way to, I, I guess, at least the way that I've been thinking about it, um, as well as, is that these these medications are are actually uh, damaging to neuronal tissue because I'll have some people and they've completely come off the medication, but they'll have symptoms that linger for years and it, it's really hard for me to kind of explain, you know, why they're so debilitated aside from, you know, you're on this Xanax and and it's just triggered some, you know, usually the um, the neurological symptoms start when they're tapered too rapidly. So they're fine. They're on their Xanax. It's it's working. They go through a rapid taper, and then everything just falls apart. You know, the you know you've probably seen it. You know, the ear ringing, the electrical pain, the shooting pain, the the fear and the anxiety. And we'll bring them down slowly, and they'll still have all of these symptoms. But it's like, okay, you know, your brain will recover. You will get there. We'll finish the taper, and then they're still having symptoms for you know several years after that. But then they kind of they tend to recover. It's like this healing process there. So it's um, I can't imagine how, you know, yeah, how complicated it, it's been for you to manage those patients as well. Cause it's, it's, it's a handful uh, over here trying to help them because well, they're I, in so much pain and they don't eat as well. Really tricky I do stuff. Think that, I do think that there's something generally being missed there. You yeah. know, um, these patients got put on these medications for a reason. They were having some sort of symptoms mm-hmm. and then they'll blame it on the medications. Well, the medications are what made me so messed up. And if I can just get off these medications, I'll be fine. Mm -hmm. Not that the medications didn't do their damage and mutate receptors and cause, you know, down regulation and all the stuff we know that happens with these type of meds. But did they ever really deal with the reason why they got put on these meds in the first place? If that reason is because they're neurotoxic, that's a lot of the reasons why they're suffering for years and years and years. So one of the, one of the things that we've, I mean, we're throwing a lot of money at research, a lot of money with our, with our EMR capturing all these data points with diagnosis and symptomatology and you know, what sort of interventions we took. One of them that is a real hot spot is mercury. Mm-hmm. If you look in a lot of these people that have that chronic symptomatology or suffering for years, they're going to suffer no matter what drug they get off of. If they've got a mercury burden, 
that specifically seems to poison their serotonin pathway. And when your serotonin pathway is poisoned, you have constant uh, fight or flight type ruminations. You have constant um, sleep problems. And um, yeah, you, you ruminate, you know, obsessively over things. And the only thing I've ever found that's healed that is getting that, that mercury out. Getting, their, mm-hmm. getting the mercury out of their teeth and actually doing a chelation process that'll help alleviate that mercury. And it, we've seen it over and over and over and over and over and over again. It's kind of like if you own a, a Prius or something. To anyone else, that might just be a little car, you know? But once you get used to seeing Priuses, you're like, oh, there's another Prius. There's another Prius. When you get used to seeing your mercury toxic person, it's like, there it is, you know? It, 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 people start telling me their story, like, of what their symptoms are. And I'm like, oh, by the way, do you have any mercury fillings? They're like, yeah, how do you know that? I'm like, well, because this is how a mercury toxic person presents. It's just like exactly like what you're presenting as. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so it, my impression from looking at your website is you treat everyone. I mean, a lot, a lot of these um, – uh, you know, it looks like you're familiar with schizophrenia, bipolar, anxiety, depression, withdrawal. Um, would you say the clinic has a specialty or is it kind of, uh, you know, able to ha- kind of help people from all walks? Well, my particular specialty is I'm a yeah. bit of the psychosis whisperer. Yep. You know, mm-hmm. I, I work particularly with people who are coming off antipsychotics. And in some ways it's it's really difficult. You know, but in some ways it's, it's a little bit more limited. You know, if, if, if somebody's having intermittent symptoms of psychosis, there's reasons for that. And as long as they'll, um, avoid those certain things and introduce certain supplements and diet and avoid, you know, caffeine and avoid, uh, smoking pot, they can kind of move through it. I don't think many people, uh, especially practitioners, feel that when you're reducing someone's antipsychotic, when they start to become symptomatic, that it's a withdrawal. They look at that as, oh, there's your diagnosis coming back again and see you need this medication in order to be stable. Those medications, they, by holding back dopamine, dopamine is like a reward neurochemical. It also keeps your spine, you know, erect. It keeps your head somewhat level to the horizon. These are very important functions, right? When you knock that out, when you knock out the availability of dopamine, your body just builds more receptors so that the little bit of dopamine that's coming through has a higher chance of exciting something. So you've got all these dopamine receptors sort of starving and you, 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 you take back that medication and you start giving a near normal amount of dopamine to these excessively volatile receptors. Everything becomes exciting. You know, they're, suddenly they're not sleeping. They want to mm-hmm. know what, you know, what, what God's thinking and, if you do it slow enough, some of that stuff can get integrated in a way where, you know, they move through it and life becomes boring again. You do it too fast, it's like stepping off of a 10-story building without taking the stairs. You're going to mm-hmm. get hurt. And um, so I specialize personally in that type of withdrawal. I do most of coaching for people that are um, going through that. But, yeah, we do help people with the opiates, the benzos, the antidepressants. Um the line kind of gets drawn um, with, you know, maybe serious Lyme patients or serious uh, autoimmune type things. Not mm-hmm. that we can't help stabilize those things, but um, some of those patients are really difficult. 
and um, it takes a lot longer to move them through it. It's not an eight-week eight process. And unless those people have a lot of resources, we tend to discourage them from, um, you know, mortgaging their house on something that's going to take a lot longer to peel through than uh, an eight or 12 week process. Mm -hmm. Okay. I'd, I'd like to ask you about your um, experience doing some antipsychotic tapers because we've uh, started doing some of these as well. You know, usually patients coming to us because they're, I mean, they've gained a whole lot of weight um, and they're, and they're trying to come off. And, and some of them have, you know, uh, you know, I would say something that appears to be a pretty chronic and legitimate psychosis. And um, the outpatient management has been really tricky, you know, because although they're doing better on much less medication, they'll periodically have these flare-ups of psychosis and their family will get worried. And then there's like, you know, what do we do? You know, do we you know, bring them to a psychiatric hospital and, you know, they'll get loaded up on something or do we go back to the, to the other medication? So I just want to get your perspective. Like how do you manage these patients that may have some residual psychosis, I guess, after you've kind of weaned them off medications and they're doing better? Yeah. Mm, I think the really rub there is what, what residual psychosis means. So mm -hmm. um, I've had now two of the biggest axioms about coming off antipsychotics you cannot drink caffeine. It is a big no-no. Even one cup of caffeine at the wrong moment in an antipsychotic withdrawal can send someone to the hospital mm -hmm. because you're flooding the you're flooding even more dopamine in there. So people on antipsychotics were usually drinking copious amounts of caffeine to try to self-medicate how they are. They're going to have more than residual psychosis. They're going to have very active psychosis during the withdrawal. And then marijuana is the other thing. If they're susceptible, if marijuana, and they're smoking marijuana during the process, they're again going to be psychotic again. Um, a, a third thing is is it, it may not be enough to be the sole culprit of a person's you know uh, rebound psychosis, but uh, a blood sugar swing can certainly amplify any other sort of hypomania that's happening. So putting people on a diet where they're getting up, they're eating in the morning, a substantial breakfast um, to get their blood sugar at least leveled out for the day, preferably eating small meals six times a day to balance out the blood sugar is another important thing. <laughs> the, three, the three things that help break down dopamine, vitamin C, um, oxygen and lithium. So oxygen can be, you, you put them on a treadmill for 20 minutes mm -hmm. or if they're, if there's to go run whatever. And it doesn't take bipolar it's that, 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 um, is basically prescribed at near neurotoxic levels. We found it doesn't have to be prescribed nearly at those levels. If a person's not already on lithium, we'll put them on lithium orotate, maybe 40 milligrams of lithium orotate to help metabolize the extra dopamine that's coming up. And sometimes that's, that's enough. But let's say somebody is that schizoaffective type, they've been on Zyprexa for, or some form of, 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 of antipsychotic for four years, and um, they're trying to come off of it, and you're doing it outpatient. 
it's probably going to be a, at least a six month program, right? Mm-hmm. When they when they come from ten milligrams, then maybe they go down to eight point seven five, and they la- they hang out there for three weeks or more, and then they come down another one point seven five. When they get down to maybe five milligrams, that's a good time to implement a bridge medication. One of one of the better bridge medications we've seen is Depakote. Now it depends on if you're, you know, a, a female that is expecting maybe to come pregnant. But um, mm-hmm. for most people, if you bridge in about a thousand to fifteen hundred milligrams of Depakote, right about that last, you know, fifty or twenty-five percent, and then ease them off of the antipsychotic completely, and then bring them back off the Depakote, you're working on two different pathways. When you're Basically, that's a little bit of pressure. Oh. Just enough. Hang, hang on one second, Lyle. I, I just lost you for about 10 seconds. Uh, the last thing I heard you were talking about um, bringing in Depakote uh, at that last, uh, I guess, I don't know, five milligrams of Cyprexa. Could you go over that again? I, I just want to make sure we catch that. So when you're coming off an antipsychotic, you're yeah. giving more availability to an excitatory neurochemical, the whole catecholamine pathway, specifically um, dopamine. <laughs> so if you're imagining you've got an 18-wheeler truck that you're trying to get down a mountain that has switchbacks and you know it's yeah. kind of icy, you, you're, you're, you're basically stepping on the accelerator. Even if you're doing it slowly, you're stepping on the accelerator to a certain degree. All right? Now, at the upper levels, you know, if a person wasn't symptomatic at 10 milligrams, they might be able to endure a little acceleration and get through it, get around the corner, and then get down to 7.5 and get around the corner. But as you start to get lower, obviously, towards the end, that's when things become a little bit more, you know, um, a little bit more touchy. Mm-hmm. So to, 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 to soften the amount of acceleration that you're having, uh, on a different pathway, Depakote is like a, it's like a GABA enhancer. It enhances the, the 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 effectiveness of GABA. So you're stepping on the brake just a little bit to make sure that that acceleration that you're experiencing coming off of the uh, off of the antipsychotic has a little bit of counterbalance, you know, and that might be just enough to get them over some humps. Um, now. Again, they can't be smoking pot. They cannot be doing um, caffeine. Uh, 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 caffeine, especially during the latter part of the withdrawal. It's I've got I've got story days. Well, not completely derailed them, but derailed them for the moment. Mm-hmm. And. Um, so that that has to be that has to be perfectly clear. If, if I'm working with an outpatient person, of course, at the center they're not going to be access to pot or caffeine. But if I'm working with an outpatient person, they can't completely commit to that. I, I don't want to work with them because I don't want to be part of their catastrophe. Yeah. Okay. Makes sense. Um, so we're getting we're getting to time in about in about five minutes. I was uh, uh, hoping uh, you know with the remaining time you could tell us about. You know, how, how many beds do you have? Um, you know, what's what's the wait list like to get in, or do, do you usually have a little bit of availability? Tell us about you know the. It, it, tell us a little bit about that. Uh, 
Um, it's an 18. Oh no, there Lyle, is a bit I, of, um, I, I lost. I, I lost you. I, I lost you again for a second. So, uh, I heard eighteen uh, beds. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we have eighteen beds. Um, we do generally have availability within a couple weeks of somebody applying. Um, yeah, and so a person fills out a pre-intake questionnaire that might take up. Um, it, it includes everything from the white bugs you've been on, how long have you been on them, what type of symptoms are you having, you know, have you had any violent episodes, yada, yada, yada. Um, any sort of behavioral concerns, you have mercury fillings, what's your diet been like, uh, medical records. I mean, it's a bit exhaustive to try to gauge whether the person's a good candidate for the program. And, mm -hmm. a, you know, a good candidate has the financial resources where it's not going to completely debilitate them to come to treatment. Um they have the time and they have a, an extraordinary willingness. This is not a, this is not a, um, not a passive program. It's quite active. There's, you know, um, quite a bit of, um, doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, um, uh, so and how much does the program cost, uh, roughly if they do, I guess, just your, your route, uh, your normal program or the most popular program? A cash pay program for sixty days is sixty five thousand, which okay. for twenty four hour licensed care is um pretty much close to the cost of what it costs to deliver that type of program. If a person has insurance, the insurance might cover a quarter of that and might cover three quarters of it. It really depends on the person's insurance. Um well I think um I think we're about time. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna turn the turn the recording off in a moment and and then ask you a couple more questions before we wrap. Okay. So, Lyle, uh, thank you so much for coming on and sharing about your clinic. It, it was a pleasure to have you here. Thank you, thank you. I appreciate it, and um, I hope yeah. that uh, that more um, more seeds like you get grown out there to, you know, help uh, Pied Piper uh, these misfit toys in a completely different direction. Yep. Yep. Okay. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you want to see the full video interview, we also post these to YouTube. Just go to Wit During Psychiatry on YouTube to find those. You'll also find several YouTube exclusive videos from doctors Yosef and Marissa posted several times a week. Finally, if you need help with your drug taper, getting a second opinion, or managing your post-acute withdrawal, come visit us at WitDuringPsychiatry.com. Our sole focus is on helping patients regain control of their lives and achieve optimal mental health on as little medications as possible.